Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Whether you are thinking about becoming a restaurateur or you are already in the business, Michael Politz has written a must-read, The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Pick up your copy today at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books a Million, or wherever fine books are sold. And here we are, live. Food and beverage brought to life. Live juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farmers, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. And today, do we have a doozy? Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Greetings from the city of gastronomy. What city is that? Tucson, Arizona. You know, it was named by UNESCO as North America's first city of gastronomy. So it's a gassy place? No, it's gastronomy. We have no, a- I get it. You, I get it. But it's, sometimes if I eat onions, I get a little too gastronomical. Listen, for 4,000 years, people have been coming to this region and cultivating food, growing food, making food, sharing food, and food was your medicine, and it was your cuisine, and it was your culture, and it was your currency. Food was everything. And we still kind of feel that way. I love that. I love that. Did they make their bread with their feet? What? I don't know. You said 4,000 years. I figured they'd be making bread with their feet. <laughs> well, they're awkward? rocking a baby cradle with one foot and making bread with the other, that kind of thing? I mean, they weren't on their cell phones. What were they doing? Listen, I'm going to tell you, 4,000 years later, we are still celebrating and perfecting the art of delicious because this time of year, right after Passover, is one of the most uh, insider secret times of year. If you know mm -hmm. what to look for, you can get some of the best, freshest, most delicious bargains of the year in your grocery store. If you're willing to put on your rubber gloves and mask and, and take a little bit of a risk, you can be rewarded. So I'm going to show you, you, you know, this product, right? This, Manischewitz. yes, but it's not just the Manischewitz macaroons. It's the Pesach macaroons. They're the Passover macaroons that come out. They're produced right in terms of on time and freshness. There are certain things that these companies are making and they make them fresh. The potato chips that Manischewitz does once a year for Passover, they're delicious. You, you know macaroons, what? You know what, Jennifer? What? Let's let's get the owner of Kadem, right? Yes. On the show and talk about this with him. Okay, I'd love that. But but while this is kind of their competitor, but uh, but so, so you, we all know and grew up with and love the macaroons at Passover time. This is a slightly unusual can. It looks a little green. This is pistachio and orange mm. scented macaroons, fresh for Passover. Mm. And guess what? 
Can you see? Can 50 I 50% off, Jennifer. That's you're just missing it. There you go. 50% there. off at the Safeway store. At the Safeway. They're in a they're in a shopping cart in the back of the store. I saw the I saw the very familiar logo and I thought, that's right. So I you're her. I am. You're I her. Would, you're I the am. little old lady in the back of the Safeway digging through the shopping cart. I am. I'm her. I love it. I love being her. But listen, you know who's going to love this? Our guest. Listen, I'm going to show you something. These are wonderful, delicious pistachio orange. They're fresh. They're soft. They're nice with a cup of coffee. I Don't am. Don't go too far. I We're am. not getting paid. We're not getting paid for this, Jennifer. Tom, slow down. I'm somebody's nana. They just don't know it yet. That's true. But let's bring on the Zadie. Let's bring on the Bubba. Let's let's talk about who we got on the show today. We got a couple you, of good ones. Today. You know handsome, I love it. I wear my I'm gonna say all this. the time. Okay. We've got two handsome men on the show today that I won't even be able to compete. Starting with Neil Sherman, right? Swoonworthy. If if I have to tell you, I've been very nervous and excited about having him on the show because. He's about to tell us some secrets mm -hmm. and he's about to also have a really, really good year because he's about he to does, have the best year he's ever had. You're right. I, I, I predicting. And you have to remember that like the Phoenix rising from the ashes, he plays an integral role in helping us evolve into the newness. And when one like door the hand opens, of God. Well, when one door closes, another opens. I mean, we just have to embrace that this is what happens. I just hope he doesn't bore the audience. What? I just hope I, he doesn't bore the audience. No, Michael, it's impossible. Well, let's not find only, out. Not only will he not do that. He, this is, I'm, I'm so excited about today. I, I, really I kind of hope we have an excited. audience for him to bore, really. Oh, really stop. Bore. You, <laughs> you're Should funny. we bring him on? You want, yeah. and I, introduce, introduce Neil Sherman. Introduce. You want, you well, you're lovely. It, listen, if we were to talk about, everybody knows that Food and Beverage Magazine is uh, a compilation of the of the best industry resources that you could possibly find. There are people in this in this industry, in the hospitality, in the in the consumer products industry, in the restaurant industry, uh, that are the real movers and shakers. And what happens is that we bring them all together in the pages of Food and Beverage Magazine, and they become our friends in the business. And so That's literally, right. this show is having conversations with our friends in the business. And we have a friend who's including later on today, we're going to talk to, um, that was not David yeah. Beckham, by the way, that is our guest later today. That's Derek Green. But it's the um, magazine. I'm showing the current issue. May yes, this, this, hit, this hit the newsstands uh, today. And you know what, Jennifer? Let's bring on Neil because he should have been in May 2020 and June. He should 20. be. He should, he should be advertising in food and beverage, I think. Because I think that he's, it's a winner. It's a winner, guys. Winner, well, winner. Let's bring him on. Where is Neil Sherman? So we want to talk to Neil Sherman. We want to introduce him from TagX uh, Brands and his businesses, which are integral to helping uh, the transition of businesses and equipment. He sells equipment and he... Well, he does lots of things, but restaurantequipment.biz. And, and, and I'm excited because not only is the technology of this moment going to be what gets us all through, every business is going to have to reimagine itself. And he's going to play a really pivotal role in helping all restaurateurs at every level 
become the business of the future. Look he's in the he's in the restaurant business of the future. Our guest uh, Neil Sherman. How are you, sir? Thank you for coming. I'm I'm awesome, and I'm I'm usually very very calm and cool and collected when I speak to iconic people in any industry. But I'm nervous right now. I'm nervous. You've set the bar so high. You put a picture up of the guy who's the cover guy, who's like a model out of the Ford Model Agency, and it, it's. I'm just glad I'm going before him. Shall we say? I'm just <laughs> glad I'm going before him. That reminds me so. of a story, Neil. One time I was up for this TV host part, right? So I, I they fly me to the Food Network. We go to New York. I fly. They put me up overnight. I stay in Brooklyn. The place smells like all crap because the trash cans are all out. It was the middle of the summer. I just wanted to go home to Vegas and leave my air conditioning. I didn't want to walk in the streets of Brooklyn with all the trash cans out and stink. So I get to the place. I'm wearing my suit. I'm sweating. We like to say schwitzing, Neil. Maybe that'll help you. Um, I walk in and they're like, oh, great. You just, the, the, the guy who was just coming in pre, pre uh, auditioning for the, before me uh, just left. I'm sorry you missed him. I said, well, who was it? And they said, Todd English. And I said, <laughs> and I said my, my kissing well, cousin. <laughs> I said, you're Todd looking, English. You look very much alike, the two of you, very much alike. Todd English, I mean, I should grab his picture and plop it up here. The most handsome chef in all the world. And I, I, I talk about putting, getting the wind out of your sail. I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm right. well I can handle it. I can handle it. If you talk about the what's going, the chaos going on in the restaurant food industry, I am honored to be with both of you to truly, I say this with all sincerity, iconic people, the publisher of Food and Beverage, James Beard Award winner from the beautiful uh, streets of Tucson. It's, it's I'm honored to be here. So hey, uh, I appreciate Neil. the opportunity. By the way, I think my mother-in-law had a can of those macaroons when she sold her house after 50 years. It was the same label. Uh, I don't yeah. think it had been open for some time. Yeah. So. I wish you were here. I'd, I'd put a little bit out on a plate and share them with you. Would that be Pam's wife, Neil? Pam's yeah, mom, I mean, mother. Yes, yes. Yeah. See what I'm saying, Jennifer? I told you he'd find a way to get Pam into this conversation no, every single time. This is what he does. He's married I'm to just... a superstar. What are you going to do? Listen, I was introduced to Neil a while ago uh, by our mutual friend Matthew, right? Matthew Marsh, and uh, Matt is one of the largest. God, what do you call him? I mean, uh, what do you he's call the largest it? vending? He's the largest vending company in Nevada, California. He and his wife are the two of the most amazing people. They're on the trucks now with masks, serving the front uh, the front line people. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. They're an amazing guy. So he introduces me to Neil. He's like, I got a friend. I want you to meet. He's got a great business. So I talk to Neil. The next thing you know, we Facebook friend each other because it's true love, right? And then it was like a domino. 40 people, 50 people. Like, how do you know Neil? How do you? All of a sudden, all these people that I knew were flying in. Oh, I know his wife. That's what they were all telling me. They don't even know Neil. They just know his yeah. the But we, but we should anyway. say that Neil is in upstate New York. So it's not like he's yes. also in Las Vegas and you just hadn't crossed right. paths. No, and it's all my friends from Maryland where I grew up, right outside of DC. And it's just, it's adorable. You know, I Look get at to it. meet Jennifer, the chef. I get to meet the chef. This is just an honor. I'm just, uh, I, I'm humbled. Listen, I, I, I'm just a cook. I, I have to tell you though. But you know what they say? That water seeks its own level. So lucky us. Hey, Neil, let's tell everybody about Tagex Brands and and what your business is. And let's set that as the stage for you commenting on where our restaurant and hospitality industry is at this moment during the pandemic. Sure, I appreciate that. But our, our uh, so 
35 years ago, I began my career in brand management at General Foods, not Raft. And it was a great experience, uh, but I wasn't made for the corporate environment nor living in New York. Uh, and uh, went off on my own, moved to Maryland. Uh, and it was at the time that prepared foods were getting more and more into the supermarkets. But supermarkets didn't know how to handle prepared foods. Many still don't. And so our, our initial business was kiosks and supermarkets. So we did soup bars for Campbell's and salad bars for Kraft and uh, frozen yogurt and coffee kiosks. And every time we'd show up, the supermarket would say, listen, can you get the papaya juicing machine that we're kicking out out of here and get rid of it for us? I was like, I, mean, I was indignant about it. Jennifer. I, was, I didn't, I'm not a, I wasn't a Sanford and son. I was a marketing guy. They said, listen, right. marketing guy, get that out of here. And so we started managing uh, surplus equipment as a, as a, you know, an extra to our clients. And uh, one thing led to another, and we were pretty good at it, and we continued to grow, and we had 35 warehouses around the country, and uh, we started redeploying equipment, and we created this aftermarket, which is kind of the essence of, of what we do. We started helping people sell surplus equipment when they either remodeled or closed or or overbought. And uh, we became a resource for the independent uh, restaurateur on Main Street uh, for discounted equipment. And about 20 years ago, we were running out of space in big cities. And I moved back to the place I said I'd never moved back to, which is upstate New York. And we bought an old army base. Oh, wow. Which uh, is a thousand acres in the middle of the Finger Lakes region, which is beautiful. And it was a distribution center for the army. And that's from where we operate. And we operate eight sales channels and we help make the market more efficient and let's just and, uh, give a couple of talk. those names because i i know you've got restaurant equipment and 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 uh several different dot com uh and sure. domains can you just tell people a few of them just so they can tap 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 at sure. when they want to start sure. looking yeah the, the main the main uh brand the hub is called tagx brands t-a-g-e-x brands.com and uh the other two primary sales channels are uh, a site called restaurantequipment.big, like an auction, B-I-D, and restaurantequipment.shop, which is a storefront. What started with just used equipment has evolved over the years, and about 70% of it is now new surplus. Surplus that it's, uh, you know, closed location that didn't uh, operate that well in the world of uh, restaurants or bought long or manufacturers or distributors. So, and needless to say, now is a time of incredible chaos in the world. So, Jennifer, let me just go ahead. Well, I wanted to say I love you know the concept of what Neil does prior to the pandemic, right? Prior to right now, because right now it's it's almost it's going to be kind of sad because there's a lot of people that are going to go out of business because they were right. just cutting it close to making making money, making a living, realize that that they're not going to. I mean, you know, when your sales drop off that much, and any. You know, so he's, they're going to want to get rid of the equipment they spent a lot of money on. Um, but to put a good light on it, this is why when I wrote my book right here, Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success, I actually put Neil in the book because I said, this is a great place to go and get your equipment, right? right. right? Go and get your lesson. I mean, it's, you know, I don't like talking about it now. I don't mind talking about the book now because you can pick it up at Barnes & Noble online or Amazon. and It'll be coming out July 1st. But more... Let me show you that again, Neil, in case you missed the book. <laughs> I love um, I actually, not, a, not only not could I do that, Neil. Like, I like that. I, 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 I just want to do that too, Neil, just to run that across the bottom. 
Okay. You know, Barnes and Noble, yeah. Amazon. But for what Neil does, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, Jen? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. really, it really does. You know, it um let me get rid of that picture. Not that I want to get picture rid of it because I, you know, I like looking at it. Okay, uh, there we go. There we go. And actually, you know, Jennifer, just so everybody knows, did write an endorsement on the back of the book. I have Jennifer, I have the food god, I have Chef Gordon. We had David Burke. We had some great writers in the back of that endorsing my book. Go ahead, Neil. I'm sorry. Did I take your thunder? Well, no. Can I ask no, no. him a question? Because I, I I think we're trying to get a snapshot of where we are right now in the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that, that has to be established is where were we in the year before the pandemic hit? Because if, if where we are right now uh, in the West is like the rest of the country, there were lots and lots of successful openings. There were people that opened as recently as a month before the shutdown. So there is a ton of activity that had been taking place from where I sit. And I wanted to find out, was that taking place all over the country, Neil? Were you, were you jobbing up uh, locations opening up over the last year? And, and were you finding that we were in a, a golden-ish time? I think... Um... So it's a great question. I think it's uh, largely a function of where you were. And mm-hmm. our market has always been uh, this dynamic aftermarket. And so it's always been serving people that have uh, run their course in their concept or had you know the misfortune of not making things work in the, in the marketplace and helping them through that change, whether it be closing the location, redeploying equipment to other locations or selling it off and monetizing their their equipment assets. Mm-hmm. But the entrepreneurial operator, whether it be one location on Main Street or chains traded on Wall Street that realized that the capital equipment is a big expense for a restaurant, always realized that if they could bring that cost down, it saved more capital for other culinary marketing people reasons. So you asked about a year ago. So in uh, two years ago, I I gave a talk at one of the Wall Street conferences for Cowan and Company. And I spoke of uh, the over restaurant and retailization of America from my view, that uh, depending on what you believe in terms of the marketplace, there were 30 plus percent more places to eat than was mouse two feed three times a day. And so it was just a question of time before a change occurred, none of us could have envisioned the tragic change of the pandemic and its impact on our, the industry that the three of us love, the food industry. Um, so a year ago- Can you restate was, that for me? Because I think that's maybe one of the most powerful things you're gonna say to us all day. Right. So, um, and, and I have, I can share this with you all and you can certainly put it on food beverage. I, I gave a talk at, at Cowan and Company and I said that there were 30% more capacity of restaurant and food service locations for a whole host of reasons. I I won't go into a lot of the details, not the least of which is prepared foods now transcend multiple sales channels. It used to be supermarkets were packaged goods, gas stations sold gas, and now really competent convenience stores sell prepared foods. And so it became over time the, the fight for that. And so we knew that there was too much capacity. It was just a question of time as as the economy did well. Uh, lenders were very liberal and they lent money to operators that probably didn't deserve to be lent money to. And so the mediocre operators were, 
you know, flailing. You would still see great success stories, but you would also see things that didn't work out so well. Celebrity chefs had a lot of challenges and, and um, you know, everybody thought that fast casual was everything and it is in some places and not so much. Of it. You but know, Neil, hit, oh, go, I just want to clarify something on that point. Yesterday we had a, a guest on um, chef uh, Michelle Ortiz, who's uh, one of the designers at the wind group. And one of the things we kept hearing her say, and everyone acknowledged was, we just don't eat like that anymore. Uh, and I wanted to have you address what that actually means from an operational standpoint and from your standpoint. What does it mean that we don't eat like that anymore regarding white tablecloth fine dining? So I think a lot of things happen. If you think back 10 years, 12 years ago in 2008, there's a lot of kind of higher end white tablecloth restaurants that just didn't make it um, because there was a constraint on the, the, the business traveler on the amount of money that they could spend. And what happened over time was uh, maybe in recent years, people were more engaged in eating at home, not to the caliber that we have right now. I mean, I can, some statistics that have occurred, we don't eat like that anymore. I don't know. I'm not as, although I'm uh, proudly affiliated with the CIA, I, the culinary tastes are not necessarily my forte with that. It's more the, the infrastructure of the, right. of the operation. I will tell you, if you look at some of the statistics now uh, and what people are saying in metropolitan areas, it's this is a seismic event, once in a lifetime event for our industry. You know, there's 8 million people out of work. There's 150,000 locations that are closed with no takeout or delivery as part of it. Um, there are people who are in a situation that um, uh, are, I think the latest number from the National Restaurant Association was the industry was going to lose $225 billion in these two or three months. It's a staggering number. But by the same token, there were a lot of operators that probably it wasn't in their, you know, their wheelhouse to be operating a restaurant and and or operating a food service, oper, you know, operation. Now you talk about challenges and opportunities. I, as I mentioned, our facility is in the middle of a, a farm field that was an army base in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, north of Ithaca, uh, between Rochester, Syracuse, and Ithaca. And there are three truckloads of equipment coming in today when I went there, new, all new equipment from the 27th biggest uh, equipment dealer in America that, that closed its stores, just shut its wow. doors. So 25 truckloads in total came in from that deal. Wow. Now and that's challenging and sad, but it's an opportunity for other people who uh, to, to value by, if you will. You're talking about new equipment from a company that just had to shutter. Uh, if you saw the movie The Founder, which was the Ray Kroc McDonald's story, the story starts with Ray Kroc as a uh, a salesman, and he literally goes from restaurant to restaurant selling a piece of equipment, a new kind of milkshake maker, and he was trying to get this new technology into the restaurants. I want to ask you about what the state of the art of technology is relative to restaurants, and is there a is there a a, a one playing field, or is it really bifurcated to those efficiency chains? Uh, and national groups 
and then the mom and pops and, and small restaurant groups or are, are basically all restaurants that cook food essentially the same, using the same kinds of stuff. So one of the things I talked, there's a lot of talk of technology in our industry, right? So right. between ordering apps and, and infrastructure and kiosks that were driven largely by the, the, the challenge of labor uh, in many markets, uh, that's one of the necessary things they went to. So everybody was investing in technology. And so when you break it down, we had a couple of private equity guys on this one panel and they talked, including uh, the guy who runs uh, the Union Square Hospitality Fund, mm -hmm. uh, very seasoned investment uh, banker. And he said, yes, there's great technology that will add efficiencies and everything, but the touch points of cooking are the touch points of cooking, right? In your hometown of Boston, there's a whole automated restaurant that cooks everything, but the the touch point of what the two of you bring your warmth to the to the food experience is what other people want. They strive for. In fact, right now, as as off the charts as some of the volume is in the supermarket industry, is the contra to what is the demise of the prepared foods industry. But when we return, um, and the smartest people I know don't know what's going to happen and how quick it's going to be. You know, you didn't when ask you go me, a, Neil. Neil, you didn't ask that? me. You never <laughs> asked me. I, well, that's why I'm here right now. That's really that, that's my. Um, it's the Trojan horse of my my. Well, yeah, but Michael, but, uh, Michael, I just want to reframe that concept for everybody so that we're all on the same page in this conversation, and it's really mm -hmm. a kind of simple one. We're in a high touch industry in a no touch world. How do you reconcile going from a high touch? in a high-touch world to a high-touch industry in a no-touch world. That's where the real conundrum is giving people this moment of pause. And so we're reaching out to everyone to say, where do we go from here? Not merely to get, you know, as they say in restaurants, get the butts in the seats. Uh, let me cook for people. This is a whole different shift. It's not just um, turning a light switch on and, and opening back up. There's way more uh, to this story. Right then people can fully appreciate and digging and digging, diving deep as we are with Neil means we can ask Neil about how people are operating and how literally successful operations are going to have to change even the most fundamental touch points of their business with their grills and their griddles and their fryers and, and their customer service. Right. Because either any way you're going to need to touch that. And, you know, I just got one of those new Brava machines. You've seen those, Neil? Brava? <clears throat> the Brava cookie machines. Um, and it cooks everything. It's not. It's not commercial grade. It's all like for home use. It's very. It's the coolest thing, but it keeps it simple. And I'm. I when I was on the phone discussing with them, and we'll have them on Jennifer at one point. Yeah. I said to them, "You guys should go to the supermarkets. Go to these and have meals prepared that you just place on your Brava tray. One, two, three. You have the code. You put it in, and it cooks everything from the broccoli to the salmon, to the meat, anything you have on that for those trays. It cooks it with a code. And you put it in, pull it out." So they may have to be going to a lot of things. I mean, the word pivot, everyone's been using. It's sort of been, you know, it's like disruptive was such a huge word over the last 12 months. Now everyone, all the restaurants are like, we've got to pivot to this. And yeah, pivot, is, but, pivot may not be the answer. No, pivot, pivot means staying on the same plane. You can't just pivot. You're going to have to climb up or climb down before you climb back up. There's going to be some lateral movement uh, as, as well as that horizontal. I just, I, 
I vertical's got to happen somewhere in this mix. It's it's not just but, side to side or turn around. But I also believe that this time is going to allow, and Neil, you can comment on this. What's happening now is going to allow for second, third generation restaurant turnovers, right? Um, you're going to have people with, with the people that have saved up and they want to get in the restaurant business and they think they can still do it. Like if you have the drive and, the, and that bug in you to become the restaurateur entrepreneur, you're going to do it. One way or the other, you're going to say, I know a better way. I know a better way. So then the thing is, they got to go to guys like Neil to get that equipment. That's the bottom line, right? So let's say somebody in Texas wants equipment from you, Neil. Would you just ship it? How's that work? It's amazing you say that because when you were talking about this high touch conundrum, Jennifer, that yep. it is so, you just articulated that so brilliantly. Not surprised, by the way. But the the fact is that when you go into a restaurant, you want to, you know, you know, the host or hostess, you hug the waiter, you say hello to the chef, the owner, et cetera. So we have a facility. We deploy, we've always been natural. We deployed a facility in Texas, coincidentally, uh, about three years ago in Dallas. It is by far the biggest hub that we have. We ship equipment. People can pick up equipment. But uh, Texas is big. I'll give you one data point. I talked to a CFO of a chain in in Austin today, based in Austin. So they opened up this week. So the rules of opening up is they can only occupy 25% of the tables. And each bar has to have one to two seats between it. Now, if you don't, that, that's the ultimate illustration of the conundrum you, you discussed. Because if the three of us want to go out and have a drink or whatever, talk, we don't want to sit three seats apart in the bar. And if do you want to go to a restaurant that's so sparsely laid out that only 25% are there? I think that there's a lot of consumer habits that have to change. Um, and I'm concerned about it for the industry, not just for, I mean, yes, our business is, we've not seen this much activity. Our, the traffic on our sites, we get a million views a month on our sites leading up to this pandemic. It's up fourfold, right? Now. Wow. And so, so now that, you're getting 4 million? People, 4 million, Neil? Four, well, views on, on, uh, in market basis. So that's the cute. last that's a cute online. <laughs> no, the last no, I know that because I know you kidding. have over 10 million, right? I'm you're just like, kidding. You're, I'm you're the as my father would say, you're the big league of that stuff. I'm, I'm just, just kidding. kidding. I'm, I'm just, just kidding. honored to be in your presence, Michael. Well, what was the, that? But the the fact is is that uh I'd ask these people when we, you know, when they came and picked it up or they called, I would ask them, what are we what are you doing? They said, well, we're going to be in this business. To your point, Michael, they got the bug. They're not leaving the food industry. They're staying in it. And they say, I need a flat top. I need a turbo chef. I need a grill. I need a refrigerator. And I'm going to take advantage of the, the dynamic market. And so it's end users. And it's some consumers who want to be the next uh, chef in, on, uh, you know, in their house. And they want to buy something commercial. And um, it's, it's an amazing opportunity for people. Yes, it's a challenge. Neil, uh, I, I want to think differently. Neil, I want to ask you: Do you foresee a future in which a restaurant is going to begin to behave more like a food production facility, almost like a uh, uh, let's? I'm going to call it a manufacturing, where the processes are locked down, tightened up, controlled, quote unquote, cleaned up somehow. Uh, do you see that happening so that it's much more commercialized uh, versus artisan? Yeah. So um, in the last four weeks, I've talked to seven different companies that have sizable investment in the ghost or cloud kitchen world, right? So they're, they're basically investing 
way more money than they should. They're looking to save money on the equipment. That's we're talking to them. And tell people but, what that term means. Sure. So it's a it's a it's basically uh, a uh, operation, a commissary operation that uh, operates with uh, no front of the house. So if you call to order or delivered to you from a given restaurant, it basically is produced in a commissary. And the exciting part for many people are that it can house multiple brands all at the same time. The most I've heard is 18, 18 brands in that operation. And they either can produce it for you or they kind of rent it out like a stall, like a food hall. And uh, it takes the overhead. It's also It was initially pioneered as a great test market opportunity that you could test your brand in a market without taking expensive retail in big cities like Chicago, Boston. Or a dirty truck. Or a dirty truck. That's the other thing. And and when you talk about when you go into, uh, I was talking to a, a, a guy, a finance guy who said, after this thing, if I walk into a restaurant, I don't care if it's a chain or anything else, and it's not clean, or it's not been spruced up, or it's not, doesn't look attractive to me, I'm out. I'm not even going to stop it. Whereas historically, I might have. Many of the casual dining, there's a lot of chains right now that are in a purgatory of where to, where to end up on this. You talk about this tight controlled thing like uh, the Brava machine that Michael, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's just a high-end consumer thing that I, I would not be able to play in that, that Michael has. But it's this controlled environment uh, that they're going to do. But I, yes, I do see it more of a production piece. And do you see it in bars as well as restaurants? Yeah, bar bar food is a big thing. Though have dinner at a bar, and I I, I think the the challenge is what do you do with that closeness piece? And and right. there probably two operators told me today that until there's something to solve this, a vaccine that's pretty you know uh, reliable. reliable in the in the percentage of things, yeah. uh, our our food industry and many other industries for that matter are very challenged. Neil, um, I I, I want to ask you. Uh, as somebody who cooks, and I know, Michael, you cook a bit too, uh, one of the things that oftentimes will happen and the benefit of being a regular at a place is that the food has become reliably, consistently irresistible. And there are places that you go that have been around 20, 30, 50, 80, uh, even 100 years. Here in Tucson, Arizona, the Flores family has been operating the El Charo restaurant and and group of restaurants for, I think, 98, almost 100 years. And when you've been around that long, you have features that make your food taste the way it tastes. And some people will say that there are great diners, let's say, in different parts of the country where their flat top makes the best burger you'll ever have. And it's the seasoning from the 40 years of burgers that makes it taste that way. How much of a of a of an of an important part of the new narrative and the reinvention of our hospitality world are some of these iconic flavor pieces going to be, or do you not buy into that? Do you think it's all about the hand of the maker and not necessarily about stuff that is as maybe I- I- imperfect a science as as the old season grill? Sure. So I think the seasoned pan, my wife bought an uh, skillet, you know, uh, today. Cast iron? It was seasoned. Yeah, cast iron. It was, it was seasoned. She did. She thought it was dirty, but it was it was really seasoned. So um, I think it's important. 
I think it's the important touch, but I think it all comes down to um, the the chef, the cook, the, the person putting it together and the ingredients and the quality of those ingredients. Equipment is equipment. I will say that some of the more reliable stalwart pieces of the kitchen, you know, the Hobart mixer, the middle right. of the oven, those types of things, you know, that those companies have historically said the biggest competition they have, the biggest competition a Hobart mixer has is a 25 year old Hobart mixer because they never yeah. die. And um, so I, I don't think it's yeah. the equipment. The only, I mean, there's been very few revolutionary pieces of equipment in my, you know, we don't sell, we're not a new equipment dealer or designer. We have a lot of clients that are, that, you know, get stuck with equipment that we like to help them with. But um, basically it's not something that we deal in. And I think it's pretty, you know, interchangeable, if you will. Neil, is the biggest threat to the restaurant industry going to be the grocery industry? Do you think more consumers are going to be getting their food and food deliveries from grocery stores, including prepared meals? Because it's so hard to imagine a restaurant that was already operating on a three or five percent margin, losing half the seats for half the covers, being able to stay competitive when you've got a grocery store who just what is the grocery store going to lose? When they all they do is they increase their distribution so, with customers. What's going to end up happening there? So right now, the grocery industry is off the charts, right? So many of the food service distributors have changed their physical operations to distribute to grocery stores because they can't keep up with the demand. Some divisions of some grocery stores have doubled their volume versus the same period March and April year ago. It's, it's, un, it's unreal to see that. Conversely, the rest, traditional restaurant industry has declined. I think that more and more the the supermarket chains were were fortunate to have Wegmans in our hometown of Rochester, New York. That's a, a very strong operator. Their prepared foods are you know second to none. During this period, they've done away with the open prepared foods and they've gone to prepackaged prepared foods. But I think it's going to continue to be competitive, uh, very competitive for the restaurant operator. It has Neil, to be experiential. Yeah. So it, it does. And that's that's one of the unknown factors. Neil, when I was a very young person, there was a grocery guy who ran a company, uh, and his name was Jimmy Bildner. His family owned a grocery chain and he spun off and he became what was infamously known as the Yuppie Grocer. And in Time magazine during that Yuppie era, he made the cover of Time magazine because he was bringing Jay Bildner and Sons grocery stores, they got capital from a hedge fund. They they expanded wildly into places like Alabama. And there were many ill-conceived placements. And he ended up going too far too fast. And it imploded along with the economic period of the late 1980s, 1990s. So I was there on the team that was selling off all of his fantastic equipment from his German gondolas and deli cases at literally when they were lucky, 10 cents on the dollar. And I learned more about how to run a business and how not to run a business from that experience. You, my friend, take the best parts of that and say, if you're opening something up or growing or doing or changing, have I got the gear for you? Talk a little bit about what it is that TagX and Restaurant business.bid does. Uh, restaurant bid. So we basically, on the one hand, deal with people that are in change. 
So they're closing locations, they're remodeling locations, they're sitting on too much inventory. And we basically help them deal with those headaches. So we go out and do what you did in this particular engagement and we help close the facilities physically. We pull the equipment out and redeploy it to another one of their locations. We'll hold on to it. And then we'll sell it in the aftermarket. And that, that aftermarket creates this opportunity for other people growing. So we're national. Uh, we're in 100% of the U.S. and Canada. Um, we're, uh, we don't discriminate based on size, never have. So we'll deal with one location or an entire chain. Um, and um, we obviously are biased in the fact that we think that operators can reduce their cost of capital equipment. And so, and, and um, our and our and our audience now has a friend in the business. Thank you, Neil. There you go. I'm honored. Thank you both very much. Neil, you are a gift from heaven. And do you know Gene Sherry? Do you know Gene? He was commenting like a maniac. I saw I, that. I I know Eugene Sherry incredibly well. You, do, you as as do I for probably thirty something years. Really. And that's then like, I see here scary, that scary um, he said, "What's up, food dudes." Eugene Sherry. Yeah, I love and Eugene look at this little sexy mama. Huh? Brenda Brody. That's I've known beautiful. her. I'm going to say, I don't want to say her age, but I've known her 50 years. Maybe 54 <laughs> years. Maybe 54 no, no, no. years. That would, be, that would be way before she was even a twinkle in her mother's eye. Right. But, but I'm sure your your numbers aren't that good. You can't be as no, they're not good looking as you are for that and, and be at numbers. Right. All right. I, we love you, Neil. We're bringing on our both. next guest. Thank You're you the both. best. Thanks, right, buddy. Bye bye. Thanks, Neil. All right. All right, Jennifer. Now we have Wait, the you gotta show the you gotta show the cover first because we are very proud of this. Wait, hold on one second, because Shelby Shelby. He can stay here, honey. We've got a hullabaloo right. so, going on. You wouldn't believe what's going on. I had to order a Trace Leche birthday cake for Shelby, whose twenty second birthday is tomorrow. Happy I'm babysitting birthday, the I'm babysitting the three year old. Instacart was supposed to surprise, deliver everything. I was going to stick the, the Trace Leche cake in the garage refrigerator, right? I get a call from the gate, the guard gate, because I have to live in a guard gated community because people are after Jennifer, they're after. Um, and they, they wouldn't let the Instacart guy in because he doesn't have a driver's license. So now she has to go while we're doing this to pick up her own cake out of the guy's car. She better wear a mask. She better wear a mask. She'll be fine. I need right, you so. to show. I need you to show our latest cover. All right, here he is. Story. Look at this guy. Huh? Leave huh? that on. Just let me. Let me just take everybody. this thing off. Let me take this. Thing. Okay. Yeah, you can see him. All right. All right. There we go. Leave it on. Soak it in. What do you mean? Where is he, Garrett? Where are you, buddy? All right. You like that? I'm gonna bring him. I'm gonna bring him in. This our May 2020 cover boy. He's got. It an looks like David Beckham, but he's more handsome. Well, I don't know. He's got an amazing story. He's got an amazing concept. Um, let's uh, let's get him on. Where is he? Hold on a minute. Let me add him to the stream. He should be with us. I don't. I don't see him. Hold on a minute. Where? What? That's not working. He was just there. Well, we gotta unmute his camera. Gotta. Oh no, he's gonna be mortified now because you know he gets embarrassed. He's gonna be. He's going to be mortified. Let Listen, me there's nothing to be embarrassed about. He makes an extraordinary product. But what's more interesting is how this man, mark my words, we are looking forward into the hospitality industry, the bar industry, the consumer packaged goods industry, the brand, oh. super premium spirits industries. We're looking in all these areas. And with this product, 
our next guest has literally reinvented, innovated, and reimagined <coughs> consumer brands and high-quality, super-premium spirits brands and distribution and ownership. I mean, the whole thing is just such a novel, yeah, incredible it's, it's idea. unbelievable. And I've never seen or heard of anything like this. Let me up here, okay? I know. And I'm I very take excited. Over, and I take over the whole screen. And then I put, he's, he's logging back in. And I put this up. Am I more handsome? Does that make me more handsome? No. He, you are. Look, you, because you, look, I could be, maybe that's really me. This could be me for the next. Should I just do the show like this? That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. No, I mean, all right. I don't know. Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm Garrett Green. I'm the creator of One Rock. Hold on. <laughs> what? Oh, my there God. There he is. He busted me. There Jeez. he is. Jeez, I got busted on that one. Put him in the middle. He, he's he's our guest of honor. Him in the put him in the middle. Kind of a wacky conversation. There we go. There there we go. What do you mean? Hey, Garrett, how are you? Let's go back to here. He's too handsome not to be right up on. Go ahead. All right, Let's... so we've got the founder. Wait, we can't one... hear you. We can't hear Can you. you. Let's, un un let's emasculate him. Let's no, no, no. No, stop it. Don't. He's got his uh, microphone muted. We're going to unmute the microphone. We'll be able to hear him. Hold on a minute. We'll keep working on it. Yeah. But I, I want to say, Michael, one of the things that every week, every episode that we have, we're looking at where we're at and where we're going. I mean, it's really important to remind everybody that we're where we are is all together and where we're going is all together. And right. because we've got friends in the business who are going to tell us where they're thinking we're going, uh, it, it's the next best thing to having a crystal ball. Um, I know a lot of people, Michael, are talking about opening up this week. In fact, we had guests that we had lined up for later in this week and early next week who were saying, we've got to push back because we're opening on Friday. We're opening on Monday of, right. of this week and next. I think it's premature. I've had a lot of experts that I've researched with, interviewed and spoken with say it's premature. What are you hearing? Um, I think it's premature. And I think a lot of people are out there, you know, they, yeah. I don't know what they're thinking. They want to bring their staffs in so they can what spend all the money they have for nothing. Well, they they want to, they want to, they want to train. I, I don't know. I mean, they want to get ready. How do you have to get ready? You've got to take out half your seats or I, I just don't understand. It just doesn't make well, sense. Well, there's a yet. whole thing that came out from this, uh, that I saw from, um, from the, um, let me put us on and let him. I just want to make sure we get Garrett because I, I've had the most extraordinary interviews. He's been on there the other Garrett. No, but yeah. I just saw your mute button on. Yep. What is he plugged? Maybe he'd be unplugged. Know. Can you unplug and use us in speakerphone? Yeah. Gary, right, whatever, whatever you just did. Hold on, hold on. We're on mute right now, so find the mute button and unmute it. Oh wow. Take the um. Can you take your head headphone out? Yeah, can you take the headphone out? And, and then just put us on speaker. Like yeah, just put us on speaker. I wonder why it's not working. Uh, yeah, let's try and get him on speakerphone. What if I just get him on the phone? Oh, yeah. look. Oh, wait, he's, he's got, got it. One second. All right, he's I'm going to give you one it. second. All right, he'll get it. He'll get it. Look, the guy created this sickening concept on in, 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 in alcohol. So, I, I mean, he'll get it. You want to talk about it a minute and see what's... Yeah, so 
the the gist of it is a really simple, beautiful concept. In the last five years, we've seen a lot of celebrated names get involved in consumer brands because they knew that the real value was in the ownership. You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, there was even a movie where Bill Murray played a, a, a world famous actor who was hired by a whiskey company to go to Japan and for a million dollars make a commercial that he drank a certain brand of whiskey. That used to be the relationship between spirits, brands, and celebrated. Oh, names. that was that what that movie was about? I know what. Yeah, you're Lost in Translation. And so, I didn't realize it. so the idea. But then uh, Paul Newman was the first celebrated name that got involved with the ownership piece of making a product. There you go. I hear something. There's test, my test, test. There we are. Good audio? Yep. Just We'll tone it down just a little bit. We're a little bit hot, but we're going to be great. So okay. Paul Newman was the first celebrated name to get involved in the ownership and really parlay and leverage his celebrated status in the consumer brands area. Our next guest, Garrett Green, has a history and background in consumer packaged goods and brands. And he observed that in the last number of years, celebrated names had an ownership interest in some of these super premium spirits. You know, brands like, well, easily George Clooney's Casamigos. But we're going to turn it over to Garrett Green and we're going to talk a little bit about his One Rock Vodka and how you are not just a consumer but you literally become an owner. And it's a really key new model that I think is going to parlay across all categories of consumer products. Garrett Green, welcome. How are you, man? Hey, I'm doing so well. Sorry about the technical difficulties. It's cool. We're, we're glad you, know, you could come and be with us. First of all, you are our cover subject for the May cover. Whoa. <laughs> I'll tell you what, um, I got to tell you, uh, being quarantined in uh, North County, well, no matter where you are, I can't tell you the number of photographers that we had to call uh, to, uh, to actually finally find one and coerce them to not open up their studio because we got none of those. We actually had to uh, co co coerce them over to my, my living uh, quarters. Uh, which is uh, an apartment up in North County, San Diego right now. Uh, and we transformed our apartment uh, to, to create these, these uh, wonderful shots that we collaborated with food and beverage on. And, and there's more inside. There's more inside the issue. Find it right online. And, and, but I want to talk about the story. I want Jennifer to really um, talk about it deliciously, as she always does, and, and, and understandably. Which, because you yeah. and I, Garrett, talked about it, we know about the business and how things work. And I think Jennifer can sort of translate that to everyone now to, to really comprehend. From, from I, I'm going to just give the first sentence. I'm going to give the headline, which which is that in all the conversations and interviews I did with Garrett Green, it became immediately clear to me that they were not interviews so much as they were fascinating TED talks about the future of not only super premium spirits but of consumer brands and branding and how the notion of ownership in a brand, the new format and the new template for distribution and product distribution and growth was one that was completely reimagined and innovated and re-engineered by Garrett Green and One Rock Club. It's starting with one product, this extraordinary super premium American vodka, but I think he really has done something that will 
look back on it and say this this truly changed the industry not unlike everything being in this period of flux and change right now the fact that we're in pandemic is going to transform our world and it makes Garrett Green look even more like the prescient crystal ball reader that I believe and got to know that he is. So I'm thrilled that everyone's going to get a chance to read just a tiny bit about it. But I, I hope that people will become really curious about who this guy is and what this company's all about. Garrett, thanks for being so generous with your time and for coming and being our subject this month. I'm most welcome. So happy to be here. Talk a little bit about consumer products and consumer products uh, brands in the super premium industry and how One Rock was born. Well, there were, uh, it's a two part dance, I think, with One Rock in particular. Um, as we've talked about in the past, Jennifer, I come from 15 years of brand development, product development, brand strategy, and uh, consumer goods investments. And that sort of discipline has a, has a process to it. Um, you know, discovery, investment, trial, analysis, um, and um, then deciding after all that whether or not something is worth your time to pursue it further with a follow-on investment and redevelopment, tightening of, tightening of strategy, if you will. Um, vodka, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult consumer goods products to succeed in anywhere on earth. Um, because of its commodity nature and its trend and culture-driven uh, nature. Uh, it, you, you, this is not an industry where you can just uh, decide to go in and be successful. There is a degree of timing. There is a degree of luck. There is a degree of finesse. Um, if we look collectively at the last 10 to 12 brands who have made it in this category over the span of 50 or 60 years, you will uh, inevitably uncover a pattern of timing um, that made these brands relevant during the particular times that they did. And, and, and Garrett, I just want to interrupt one second and say that one of the most important points that you could possibly make is when you just did, and I really want to shine a light on it. And that's to say that in the world of consumer product branding, to have a product that is intrinsically cons considered a commodity is the exact opposite of what a brand would be. It's it brands and commodities are the opposite mirror images of one another. That's right. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. And right. so you can't be a commodity and then simultaneously be branded. So what had to shift? Well, I think the what had to shift is the um, is the uh, is the realization that. Um, in, in certainly the last three to five, maybe six years, commodity brands, even though they're not supposed to exist on paper, have become wildly popular um, with, with millennials and the, and the large majority of the consuming market out there because um, they're driven, the successful ones, by stories, by ethics, by value systems. Um, by little by little windows into the culture of these things, and they they transcend them from commodity to brand through those strategies, through those those uh, those aspects. Do you have an company. example you can share with us? Um, let's see. Well, um, well, let's stick. Let's stay in our lane with vodka. 
Um, Tito's. Yeah. Okay. Tito's uh, by far the preeminent vodka brand in the world right now. And, um, I, and if I'm not mistaken, they are still the best-selling uh, spirits brand in the United States. What in the United States? Um, they've they surpassed Smirnoff in volume uh, just the past couple of years. This is a uh, not only a little success story, but a historical one, right? It's massive. Massive. But Tito's really is a commodity. It sells vodka. Vodka arguably has the smallest differentiator differentiation from one recipe to the next. By Very virtue diff- of its technical definition of an odorless, colorless, tasteless spirit. That's right. That's right. Um, but Tito's, for example, uh, somehow figured out, and I would argue by accident, how to make their brand relevant with an initial core adopting group of people. Uh, at the time, we could define those as hipsters in the early 2000s. Coupled with the hipsters was a naturally a natural rise in nationalism post-war, post-recession uh, and recovery. And these two people, at the same time, uh, saw Tito's as representing their ideologies, their newfound ideologies, through things like not a fancy dressed-up label, as we're accustomed to seeing in the category for so many years, but instead a paper label. Uh, and a uh, from a destination, I mind you, that's arguably the most iconic American state in the country. Right. All right. So just a cut. That's just a taste of some of the things that started to that aligned for that brand, that started to give it momentum and relevance, and eventually a story uh, that people latch, would would come to latch on to and perpetuate. Garrett, how do you start with a product? that has such ubiquity and innovatively come up with such a powerful paradigm shifting concept as the one rock club ownership. Will you talk about what one rock club is and how that maybe even more than the vodka itself is the brand story here? Yeah. Well, when we we talk about vodka and commodities, um, commodities really don't do anything for people. And so you have to create something around that product that gives that something, someone gives that consumer something tangible, something different to latch onto that is distinguishably different from any, uh, every other brand that they have interfaced with in that category. So we looked at the vodka category and said, look, this is a group of players that are all using the same tactics and the same strategies and frankly, the same stories to try and generate interest and attention for themselves from the consumer. And we looked at that and said, and by the way, if you open up that story and you open up those features, it's inherently or intrinsically rather conveying to the consumer that if you buy me, you become special. You acquire status in society, even implied financial status. Well, hold on a second. That is quite a misleading idea because, Jennifer, you and I know, and 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 the business community knows, and invariably more and more consumers are discovering and realizing the only true benefits when we talk about the consumption of products and brands the only true privileges 
or arguably the most genuine form, the most opportunistic form, are those benefits and privileges enjoyed by the owners. And I'll call those those the, the legacy benefits. Those are the legacy benefits. They're not the immediate benefits of a good tasting product or the conviviality that might stimulate. When we talk about this category of benefits, we're talking about legacy benefits. And they're more than financial, although finance is a big piece of it. But there's more to it than that. Absolutely. Absolutely is. And uh, so, but at, at our core, we believe that if you're the most powerful component Right. In, in, a, in the relationship between a brand and a company, the consumer, you deserve more. Right. Recognize your power. Align yourself with brands that treat you with that respect, that provide you features and benefits that the competitors don't. And ask the question why they don't. And dwell on it. And then discover one rock. And, un- and uncover the reasons why we do what we do, and then go and explore the additional cursory benefits that we've designed to make the experience of the brand unlike anything else that's in the market or has ever been introduced. And Garrett, this sounds really expensive. In fact, you've made this really accessible. Will you talk a little bit about how, how sort of accessible this, this entry point is to this club? It, right, it looks more... We call this a, an exclusive, inclusive experience. This looks high-end, fancy, and it should only belong to a certain group of people or consumers, perhaps. But if you look closely, we have a very welcoming pricing structure that allows the most average of consumers to join and uh, participate in this experience um, that, we, that we have as part of the platform. The entry level, for example, is $100. grants you access to the club. You become an owner in the company and in in that essence, the brand. And then you enjoy the privileges that come with that ownership. And And do I get that when I buy one bottle or do I have to buy shares? How does that work? So when you, you, this is a invest to join model or a join to invest. When you place your investment, you in essence join the club. You become a member of the One Rock Club and a shareholder, a real shareholder in the company, which, of course, owns the rights to the intellectual property and the means of production. You become part of the real deal. Um, to, to, to tag and, this, on- and, and, and I, ha- I want to say, this is different than just going to the stock exchange and buying shares of any of the publicly traded spirits. Well, let's give an example. Yeah, Diageo. Like Diageo. Yeah. There you go. This is different. This is different. This basically centers on a a brand new set of securities laws that went into effect no more than two and a half years ago um, that allow companies, namely private companies, to offer shares direct to the public without the requirement of a Wall Street broker, for example. Uh, So that means you're buying, you're not only buying the share, but you're buying the share direct from the company. And due to the stage of the company, you're buying at the earliest possible stages of the company's life cycle. In essence, you're buying our stock at wholesale versus retail, which is what the stock market is in Wall Street. And so So literally, the upside for me is now greater. The upside is substantially greater. 
you could argue we have sort of mantras you could say in the company and uh that that um that underscore some of our philosophies and beliefs about the financial system and the economic order at large but one of the true methods or formulas to wealth creation is owning companies at the earliest possible stages of their lifestyle, specifically unique companies with a large degree of potential upside, right? Because the life cycle of companies is one where if you are an early adopter, there's a likelihood that you will be rewarded for having taken the risk that it could have gone either way. Absolutely. And this privilege, the privilege of investing at the earliest stage in a private company, is one that was reserved legally for only the wealthiest classes of Americans for the last 90 years in this country. Uh, that's, that's a substantial thing. And if you ask the, the guys, the Wall Street guys or the SEC people, right. they would tell you that this was in place to protect the average consumer. Today, but our, our vantage point is, is different. Go ahead. Uh, but if you yeah, knew sure. somebody who was an investment banker, you had to have that inside track to that profit center. You had to, you had to have the inside track. You needed to have assets in the bank to play. It was you it's had to all be a part qualified of, investor. All part of a club. All part of a club. That club, that club of of what we could say accelerated wealth creation has now been is now available to the average American investor in a way that's revolutionizing not just consumer goods with one rock, but also the financial market as well. Garrett Green and One Rock Vodka on the cover this month of Food and Beverage Magazine. Uh, be sure and check it out. If you are not currently a subscriber to Food and Beverage Magazine, Michael Pollitz, let's tell everybody where they can go to become a subscriber. Well, you because, can go to W. But, 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 oh, but, oh. You can go to, you can go to fbmagazine.com or fb101.com. And you're able to click on a the Digizine link is there on the right hand side if you look at the uh, website. But we uh, also have all the articles updated probably hourly. We have so we have right now nine, over nineteen thousand people reading an hour. I'm um, looking for all the information from us and from Jennifer and her team of writers. Um, I think you know when I saw what Garrett did when we met, I was I couldn't believe we I had had some involvement in his this regulation stuff for restaurants a few years ago and uh the guy never pulled through and then when garrett told me what he was doing i was like oh i know all about it this is an amazing concept it was an amazing concept that somebody could take that step forward but those are the kind of things that i want to bring out right now right like there's going to be a lot of wacky stuff with this pandemic there's going to be a lot of restaurants closing a lot of things happening that we're not used to right you know um and then, and then what can we do? You know, I, I, I sometimes I defer to my friends, like my friend Chris Loudon, who happens to be, what's up? Who happens to be popping up right now with a what's up? Chris owns a place called Stoney's Rockin' Country right here in Vegas. And he has radio stations and he manages country artists all over the world. Huh. Um, so we're going to have one rock uh, available at uh, at Stoney's, Garrett. And then, I think I, we talked about that. Love that. Um, but guys like Chris, it's like, you know, he, he owns a bar. So it's like, and he, and he owns a, a bunch of bars. And he came from the, uh, 
he came from the world of of uh, what's the best way to say I, hospitality, but more like casino. Parents were the casino. Yep. So he's had a little bit of a level, a little bit levels of all types of things. So he's seen it all, but he has never seen this. And you know what? It might be good to have Chris. Uh, Chris, we would love to have you on the show, buddy. We would love to have you on the show. Yes, um, please. So we would like to get Chris here. Chris, if you want to come on today, that's fine. If you want to come on uh, Friday, that's fine too. Um, look at this. We got people popping in. They love Stoney's. It's a it's a great place. It's but an institution. It but is you an know institution. What? But here's the thing, Michael. When you have a place that is so pivotally a part of a community that does the things that are the transformative things that are shifting the way the world's doing business, the way that we're coming together and gathering as people, these are the folks who are going to help us reimagine where we all go next. The innovators. Well, that's what it is. And that's why I thought this was so important for Garrett, because it's an innovative idea, right? Yeah. The, the way he's doing it is innovative. It's bringing people. When I was with the with the Ciroc team, when, you know, when we launched Ciroc, um, we, it, to maneuver and manipulate and to navigate the waters of getting things moving and getting new brands in, you know, without the Diageo money behind it, that would have been a problem, right? Um, Garrett has a point of entry here that not only, one, allows for automatic sales. If I had a liquor store, he, in a certain area, he has, I don't want to say members, other owners in that area that we, he could say, oh, by the way, now you can get your product, your product, not the product you'd like, your product over at Michael Polis's liquor store on 9th right. and 12th or whatever right. the street is. Right. We're wondering if uh, we can maybe open that up for a minute to help the, up, help the audience appreciate some of the, uh, the, the processes and mechanics kind of driving the platform and the model. We talked a lot about kind of the cult, the high-level cultural stuff, trends, and in, in the in the legal framework. But let's just get to brass tacks and as to why this is so effective for us, um, why we have the traction we do, why people are coming into this thing, why we have an oversubscription uh, of of members chomping at the bit to get into our our our, uh, our reopening, which is coming in a couple of weeks. That's the reopening of the club. We do these in tranches. Um, so this is basically purely a digital-driven model, web-enabled. Uh, we are firing advertisements 24-7, which invite people to discover One Rock, uh, click through the funnel, land on our website, uh, and discover the brand and the experience uh, and opportunity that we're offering with one rock and in that process creating an identity um, and a and a highly differentiated value proposition for the brand so but aren't they creating their own identity garrett is it and, really oh absolutely this is this is the ultimate person this is the ultimate uh complement to one's connoisseurship uh food and beverage um uh standards uh, whatever, however you like to describe it, because for the first time, the consumer now um, doesn't have to pretend um, to um, to acquire something when they don't. Now they are. Now they're, they're, owners. Now so they're how, owners and they're right. the masters of their domain. So how does that work in terms of all right, when can they buy it? You know, when when can that happen? So the club clubs, the club opens and closes. Um, and it's 
it's primarily designed to be open for majority of the time. We just concluded our first offering, um, which uh, closed in March. Uh, we enrolled 2,700 members around the world. A much large majority of those are U.S. Uh, consumer members, consumer uh, member owners, if we want to use co-op language. Um, and um, we're only allowed us to uh, bring in a certain amount of re uh, investment revenues per 12-month rolling period. Once we hit 1.07, we have to close the club. We have to file with the SEC. And then, then we have to refile with the SEC, SEC for a subsequent offering to reopen the club and continue growing membership. And that's so what's when happening. Is, when is that happening? When is the new membership available? New membership is going to be coming live here if all, all stays on time on time in the next two to three weeks. Huh. Um, and we've, um, we have a lot of amount, we have a lot of very exciting announcements coming that we've been holding off on uh, sharing until the, till the offering is up and live. Um, and so are any, of those in, are any of those announcements in food and beverage magazine right now this month? Um, there are a couple of there are a couple um, alluding to those updates, alluding to those announcements uh, towards the, uh, the the latter half of the article. Um, but we had so, to be discreet because you don't want to spoil the ending. We don't want to spoil the ending, and uh, some of the some of those partnerships, uh, for example, are in the final stages of uh, uh, commensurating uh, as we speak, uh, as well. So that that's important to know, Jennifer. Would you would you ask Garrett your favorite question? Do, do you need me to do it for you? Yes, Garrett. What does conviviality mean to you? <laughs> ah, conviviality. I think that's the ultimate. Uh, I think that's the ultimate word to describe uh, the feeling of community, collaboration, togetherness, connection um, through mediums that are uh, that transcend uh, material. Um, and Jennifer likes that medium to be alcohol. She thinks that it produces great conviviality. With you people. know, you know what it does. Actually, the table, the table in the kitchen with the chairs around it. I believe conviviality is the joy of sharing, breaking bread together, clinking glasses together. It's not just having the, the social lubricant of of spirited beverages. Uh, true conviviality can can be experienced in any part of our world and our culture. I used to be the hot lunch lady at my son's school and we created conviviality with kindergartners. I mean, we anybody can make conviviality is the sheer joy of experiencing and sharing a moment in food and drink together. Yeah. It's the it's the ultimate connection. And uh, and that and that feeling is is completely amplified right now, as isn't it? Yeah. Um, and 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 honestly, I'm I, I'm very excited, and I've told my family last week when we did our our weekly Zoom meeting. I'm blessed. I feel very fortunate right now, and I and I and I and I want all of our members to feel the same way. We are in one of the few industries out there, um, with exception. Um, that is uh, is poised to uh, burrow through uh, some of these difficulties right now. Alcohol sales are up, um, you know, for a second OND uh, type uh, type levels of sales, even though 
October, um, November, December. Let's tell a bit. Yeah, October, November, December, where 65% of the annual sales take place. We're having right now basically a second OND period. Um, but that's with the exception that the on-premise is non-existent. Um, but hopefully sh uh, sh uh, shortly getting back, back, uh, you know, back open in the next few months. But what we'll we were see. reminded we'll of, see. Michael, is, is that home sweet home is our favorite watering hole. That's true. I, I have no problem with what's happening now. I think that it's a wonderful experience that everybody, should, I, mean, I understand it's financially taxing, but I think in the end, it's a wonderful experience that I think that you will miss right. because it's the only time in our lifetime and probably our kids' lifetime that we'll be able to savor this and cherish this. Because um, we're together with our kids. Well, we're together with each other, right? Like, I mean, yeah. look how much time we got to spend together, Jennifer. You know, it's going to be a sad day when you're out there flaunting your James Beard Award again somewhere <laughs> out there in the world. Because wow. I'm just that way. When I'm out on tour, my book tour at the end of the summer, it's going to be, you know, flaunting my book again. Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. available. And we're all going to be pouring this for our friends and mm. our, our new business associates mm. uh, and club members at One Rock Club. Yeah, we want Garrett back on again, don't we? I mean, look at this if face. Let's, let's look at that face. Is that the same guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we had... You guys did a wonderful job. I'm so happy you guys took interest in this and what we're doing. And uh, we think we think our model and the brand is is going to allow retailers to become much more effective and efficient operators uh, because they no longer have to roll the dice with a new brand. Because, for example, One Rock walks into their stores on day one with a Rolodex of of, of customers. Customer. And no one gets that, Garrett. They don't understand that, dude. You know how many times I've talked to people about it. You and I have had this conversation over and over again. I'm like, if I could carry one thing, if I said there's 300 people that want this pen, I would take this pen and sell it all day long. But for some reason, politics, whatever it is, it's like, why would a liquor store not want? Why would? And you know what? Now we're going to show them that they have to. And now given that, and, and I believe you and I have talked about this privately, Garrett, and, and you too, Jennifer, that... Um, People can be successful because they have lots of money coming in the door and they don't realize where all the holes are and what they're losing and what they're missing out on. Now they do because all that money's not coming out of the door, right? Now they see where the dam is and they need to puncture, push it up and put their bubble gum in it and, and, and it's hemorrhaging. So when a brand like Garrett Greens comes along, right? When a brand like that with a face like that, one rock, gonna, is that Charlton Heston? Damn you the hell. Damn you to hell! <laughs> he, he, honestly, though, he does look like a young Burt Lancaster or oh, a Burt more Lancaster. handsome, a more handsome David Beckham. No, I think Burt Lancaster. Oh, I'm flattered. I Thanks, think he Jennifer. looks. I think he does look like Burt, Lan like young Burt Lancaster. Do you? I see yeah. a little bit. I see a little. Uh, little Jerry. I'm Lewis sorry, Garrett. We're embarrassing you. We don't. I gotta learn how to sing, you know, so I can give you the Jerry Lewis. <laughs> I love I'm, that. I'm working on that right now. Good, he's working on a seat. See, he's got, got time. Of, I've had a, had a lot of time over here. I'm going to start singing. He's got time, right? I mean, Garrett, that definitely really, is the blue steel. I, I'm really, I'm really proud of you, and I'm, and I'm really grateful for the privilege of getting to climb on board and help tell this story. Did you notice I changed the background for Jennifer? Yes, I did that because I felt that it's deserving right now. It's the time. It's like I know, right? That look at that with that background, huh? Yeah. 
<laughs> Look at that with that background. It's like the cops, baby. Woo! Good God, man. Good God. Damn you to hell. All right. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think he's been drinking vodka this afternoon. In fact, he has not. I love it. It's just the natural, the natural spirit of uh of Michael Pollitz. And honestly, Michael, one of the things I keep uh, going back to Garrett, and he and I are incubating this. We're marinating in the idea. We're kind of trying to free our minds and spirits because one rock vodka needs to have a house toast so that yes. wherever you are in the world and you're clinking glasses with someone with the product that you own, what is that toast going to be? Because I, I think brilliant. the tradition and, and and custom of toasting is a critically important one. Like Das Vidanya. Well, and it becomes your legacy. Part of the legacy. What's your legacy, Garrett? Let's do it now. Let's make up our toast. I think, it, I think it's to ownership. Ownership over your uh, thoughts, your actions, your beliefs, and of course, your spirit. Owning who you are, owning what you believe, owning your dignity, um, and owning your future in a well, way that. I'm going to raise my glass and say. Raise your glass. I'm going to raise my glass. I'm going to take the bottle out here. And I'm going to say, course, own it. Forced, I don't know if we can drink on, on camera, but here Absolutely. you go. Cheers. Have what you want. Own, own Cheers. it. Cheers. Cheers. But you know what else I want them to own, Garrett? I want everyone to own one of these. Food and Beverage Magazine Guide to Restaurant Success. And I, I want, want everyone I want everyone to own one of these and then pull them out and serve them to me when I come visit. Oh, God. All right, Garrett. Thank you, buddy. We will have you back on. We want to hear the updates. As soon as you go live with the new uh, with the new offering, we'll, put, we'll, we'll come up and maybe we'll yep. be able to even have some comments and people with questions. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We got somebody here. Let's see. Can't wait to learn more about Garrett's creation. Happy I dropped in. Thanks, Mike. Thank wow. you, Joe. Thanks, Jill. Jill's adorable. Jill is uh, very, very powerful over at Caesars Entertainment and uh, takes me to the most fabulous lunches. We actually, and um, I only, we go, you know where we go, Jennifer? I got to ask you, is my favorite place of all time, is Payard still there? Uh, no, it's not, I don't think. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We go to Gordon Jill, Ramsay. is Payard we, still there? She, they make yeah, the Jill. best almond croissant I've ever had in my whole life. Oh, I love the way you said croissant. That's so convivial. But here's the thing. I go to the I go to Gordon Ramsay's with Pub with Jill, and I don't order the lunch. You know what I order? The toffee pudding. Mmm, <gasps> yum. That's all. I said, Jill, just she's like, give him give him a whole one, and that's it. That's all. I, I think I might have gotten fish and chips, but I just couldn't wait to get my mouth onto that toffee pudding. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, yes. Payards, Payards yeah. is not there anymore. Oh, Philippe Bertino, who is the uh, executive chef, who is the chef de cuisine for Francois Payard. He is one of the most underappreciated um, chefs in North America. Uh, oh, Philippe Bertineau I would along with him well then, because I'm an underappreciated Philippe Bertineau is a remarkable chef, and, and I, I follow his career, and, and I just want people to know I think he's enormously talented and just incredibly kind, and he, he's, he's a true artist. And to end on that, shall we end on that? Garrett, we love you. Jennifer, anything, last words for Garrett? Listen, for Garrett, congratulations. The new issue is out on the newsstands. The May issue of Food and Beverage Magazine is out. We've got the James Beard Foundation nominations were announced this week. Join us on Friday 
We're going to be tying it all together. We've got incredible guests coming to join us on Friday. And Garrett, do you know who's coming to join us on Friday? Is Jared Brown, who is one of the world's most influential spirits authorities, one of the pioneers from my Tales of the Cocktail days, and the founder, co-founder of Smith, Sip Smith Gin, oh my. which is the first uh, distillery in London in a very long time. And They need to win one of these. Proof Awards. Proofawards.com. I know. Wait until. But he, along with his incredible wife, uh, Anastasia Miller, have uh, written dozens of the most influential spirits books uh, in the world. They're some of the most sought after teachers and experts. And I'll be really keen to get his his take on all this as well. And as you know, I like to finish every show by saying, you know, please hug your kids and count your blessings. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, Jennifer.